All right, great, thank you. Well, good morning, welcome to Sunday School. I know some people are still coming in, but that's okay. We're back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, continuing to look at how God's grand purposes for all of time and eternity were unfolding even in these first few books of the Bible. Last time we were together, we looked at Israel's arrival at Mount Sinai and their reception of God's covenant, God's law, and the Ten Commandments. We saw that the Ten Commandments are really a summary or an introduction to the rest of the law that God gave to Israel. Saw that conformity to these commands involved both the heart and the outward behavior. One could not simply keep the Ten Commandments externally. We also saw that Israel committed itself to obeying those commands as part of keeping covenant with God. They said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Multiple times they said that. Today, however, we'll see how quickly Israel breaks covenant with Yahweh. And that is, they commit idolatry against their Redeemer. Today's lesson is all about the golden calf incident and how God punishes idolatry. Now, this is another well-known account from the Bible. So I urge you to give your full attention so that you don't miss anything of what God intended to communicate from this passage and that you might be properly affected and transformed by it. Let's investigate what happened, how God, in response, showed forth both wrath and mercy, and then think about how are we to apply this account today. Well, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Holy God, God of the universe, God in heaven, you have revealed yourself to us in your scriptures. You, of course, revealed yourself to a certain degree in all of creation. None of us can deny that you are God and that you deserve our obedience. We, we are all at fault when we turn to idols. Yet, God, you've given us this word so that we might know you in a fuller way. So help us to know you. Help me to be able to explain this well. And God, give us understanding Convict us, encourage us as we read about what happened with Israel during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Our main passage today is going to be Exodus 32. But before we get there, please turn to Exodus 24. Just want to give you a little bit of a backdrop for what we're about to see. Exodus 24, this is the last time Israel sees Moses before he disappears on the mountain. Exodus 24, verses 12 to 18. I'll just read this. We won't really analyze it. Exodus 24, verses 12 to 18. The elders of Israel just had a covenant meal in the presence of Yahweh, seeing his glory in a limited way. And here's what it says. Now the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire 
on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So here's the picture. Moses disappears into the cloud on the mountain. It's burning with fire, or appears to be because of the glory of the Lord. And now let's turn to Exodus 32, approximately 40 days later. Exodus 32, we're going to read the entire passage today, but we're just going to take the first section of it right now. We'll do it in three sections. Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6 is where we'll start, so follow along with me. Here's what God's word says. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Well, let's observe this first section. Notice that the people of Israel, they approach Aaron in verse 1, and they ask Aaron to make for them a God to go before them. And we say, wait a second, doesn't Israel already have a God to go before them, to lead, to provide for them? Well, not a made God, not a God whose form they can see and understand. Notice also in verse 1 what they say about Moses. He's... MIA, and they don't expect him back anytime soon. We don't know what has become of him. And notice Aaron's response in verse 2. He doesn't say, my brothers, do not sin by making this request. Instead, he says, bring me all your gold earrings. Bring me all your gold earrings. Now, where would Israel, remember they were previously enslaved, they were oppressed people, where would they have gotten all these gold earrings? That's right. It would have been when they, right before they left, the plundering of the Egyptians that God accomplished for them, giving them favor, causing the Egyptians to fear Israel and look highly upon them. That's how they received these gold earrings. And now Aaron says, give me all those gold earrings. And notice what Aaron does with the gold in verse 4. He fashions it with a tool into a molten calf. Now the term calf here, it could also be understood as young bull, or young ox, but we traditionally call it a golden calf. But why a bull? Why, why this animal? Well, bulls and oxen were certainly thought of at that time as very strong animals. They were great symbols of strength. And a young animal is full of life and vitality or virility. Notably, there were many bovine, that is cow-type deities in Egypt, including the very popular god Apis and the popular goddess Hathor, Hathor we've seen before. So they, Aaron makes a bull. And when the people see the image, notice what they say to one another in verse 4. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now catch that. 
They're saying this is Yahweh. Wait a second. Didn't Yahweh say something about making images even of him? Maybe in the second commandment? Do not make an image of anything that you see in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now notice the beginning of verse 5. What Aaron does next is in response to this declaration from the people. They're all telling one another, hey, this is our God. This is the God who brought us up. What does Aaron do? He builds an altar before this golden bull. And he proclaims that the next day will be a feast to Yahweh. And we see the feast commence in verse 6. Seems to start out all right. They're offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then they sit down to eat and drink. And in the last phrase, it says they rose up to play. Now, this word for play here comes from the Hebrew root referring to laughter. Actually, its usage is interesting. The same verb is used in Genesis 19.14 to describe how Lot's sons-in-law thought that he was joking about the imminent fire of judgment coming down on Sodom. The verb also appears in Genesis 26.8 to describe Isaac sporting with his wife. And King Abimelech sees that. And he's like, ah, that's not your sister. That's your wife. Also appears in Judges 16.25 describes the blinded Samson being made to entertain the Philistines, to amuse them. So you can see a little bit of the range of this word. What does play mean here? Now, some have said it refers to sexual indulgence. The phrase can include sensual behavior and promiscuity, but that understanding is too narrow. Actually, without getting into it, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 7 and 8, which refers to this event, it differentiates it from a later event, which was focused primarily on immorality. It says, don't do what they did around the golden calf, and also don't do what they did later with immorality. So there seems to be a distinction between those events. So I think we should understood this idea of rising up to play is just general revelry. Basically, it's a party. It's a big party in the camp. But... Just as the God and the worship of that God really imitates the surrounding nations and what they did with their gods at that time, well, so will the party. This is not just some great feast, righteous feast. We're going to see just how unrestrained the people's behavior becomes. So here we have verses 1 to 6 in our passage. Now let's ask a few interpretation questions about what we just read. First, Who's really in charge here? Aaron is ostensibly in charge, but is he really in charge? No, who's leading here? The people. It's the people and their cravings. Whatever they want, Aaron does. He's just following their lead. And this is really sad because you think about Aaron's role as a leader. This is a privileged position, an exalted position, and who gave it to him? God did. God raised up Aaron along with Moses as a leader of Israel. And this is the way that Aaron's leading. Another question. Why is the request to make us a God to go before us? Why is that actually a nonsensical request? I mean, think about it. How can it be a God if you have to make it? Right? Or how can it go before you if you're the one who has to drag it around. I mean, this is the same kind of critiques that the Bible is constantly offering against those who go after idols. Not only is it an offense to God, but it's 
It's senseless. It's useless. These idols can't do anything. You're taking a piece of wood, you're taking some gold or some metal, and you fashion it into an image and you bow down to it. It's the most ridiculous thing. And yet this is still true today, not only with idols that people make as images, but idols that we have, that we make in our hearts. They can't do anything for you, but they are an offense to God. Another question. What is so tragic about the people using their earrings to make this golden calf? Yeah, Roy. Yes, that's exactly it, right? As Roy said, what was meant to be a gift from God for the people to enjoy and to honor God with, they've actually used to defile themselves, dishonor God, and bring harm upon themselves. They've used the very gift of God to pursue an idol. And isn't this always what idolatry does? This is the same, or this is the same issue that God brings up with Israel later in the book of Ezekiel, a very famous passage in Ezekiel 16, where God's describing his history with Israel, his relationship with Israel. And he says, it's like I found you as an abandoned baby on the side of the road that nobody wanted. You didn't even have your umbilical cord cut, but I cleaned you. I, I took care of you. I, uh, I nourished you. I beautified you, I gave you clothes, I gave you jewelry, you became a young woman, you became beautiful, and I married you. And then what did you do? You took all the things I gave you and you used them to pursue other lovers. You took all the things I gave you and you used them to pursue false gods and idols. And that's exactly what's happening here. And of course, that's still true today. With the idols that we are faced with and that the people of the world are faced with, what are they doing? They're taking the various things that God has given them so that they would turn to God and they use them to pursue idols. We even do this as Christians. I mean, think about some of the blessings that God has given you, your time, your health, your family, your money, your circumstances, things that God has given so that you may serve him. How are you using those? Are you, in fact, using them to pursue idols? It's the same kind of egregious offense and tragedy that we're seeing right here in our passage. One other question for now. Are the people really worshiping Yahweh or are they worshiping a different God? It's not, yeah, it's not really Yahweh, is it? This is a different God. They call it the God who's delivered them from Egypt. They even refer to it as Yahweh. But this is not Yahweh. You see, worshiping God, true worship of God is more than getting the right name. Yahweh is not a God who can be represented by a bull or a calf, nor can he be honored by an indulgent feast. Their understanding of this God is it's not the true God. And this is why even today we can say those who say they worship God, hey, hey you know, it's the same God, or I, I worship Jesus too. But if they don't really know Jesus, they don't really know God, they don't actually worship him. They worship, to whatever degree they, they are able to worship, they worship a different God, a false God, actually, an idol. For those who don't know Jesus, when they worship Jesus, it's a Jesus of their own making. 
It's not the Jesus of the scriptures. It's a God from their own imagination, and it is an offense to God. You know, we sometimes even think about the Jewish people. We say, oh, you know, it's the same God. They just haven't really understood about God the Son. Well, because they don't really know the true God, it is not the same God. They have, they've come to worship a different God, even though it's the same name. And we can fall into the same kind of trap ourselves, can't we? We think that we're worshiping the true God. We think we really love God, but if we're actually, if we don't truly know him, or if we're walking in sin, is it actually a God of our own imagination? And it's so easy for us to do this because the God who actually is, it makes us uncomfortable so often. I've been reading a book uh, recently, a book that's just an exploration of theology, and the author was saying that so so many times we take the God of the scriptures and we want to reduce him to something that's a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more in our control. And as soon as we do that, we're no longer really dealing with the God who is. But this is what idolatry does. And this is something that we can even fall into as Christians. Danny, I think I saw your hand. Did you want to say something? Right. Very true. Danny, you're noting in the previous chapters, God has been laying out very precisely. He's been describing, this is who I am, and this is how you worship me. This is how you walk before me. And Moses is beginning to relate these things to Israel. But even what he's related so far, Israel is just totally disregarding here. You must know the God who is, and you must come to him in the prescribed way. And yet, our because of our sinful flesh and because of our unregenerate hearts apart from the Lord— we are constantly wanting to rebel against what God has revealed against himself or revealed about himself. And we want to come to God in our own way. But of course, when we do that, we're not really coming to the true God. Now, what does God think of all this? I mean, the people are committing idolatry, though they say they're worshiping Yahweh. But does God say to himself, well, they're a little off in their method, but their hearts are in the right place. Or, hey, as long as they're sincere, I don't mind how they come to me or worship me. Well, let's look how God responds in the next section. Look at Exodus 32, verses 7 to 14. This is God's reaction to the people's worship. Exodus 32, verse 7. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated Yahweh his God, and said, O Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people? whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, 
Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all the land and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So Yahweh changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. I feel like this is this is such a dramatic scene right here. I can tell it's affecting me a little bit, but let's observe this section. Notice how Moses learns what Israel has done. God tells him in verses 7 to 8. And what's striking about how God describes Israel to Moses in the beginning of verse 7? How does he refer to Israel? Excuse me. Yes, he says, your people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt. You can see the Lord is distancing himself from Israel. And notice what else God says about Israel. He says they have corrupted themselves, verse 7. They've directly violated several of the Ten Commandments and have shown themselves to be corrupt. Verse 8, they've quickly turned aside from God's commands. And was it not quick? I mean, this is less than two months after they've received God's covenant and they've affirmed that they would keep the Ten Commandments. This is less than two months. And God says, verse 9, they are an obstinate people, literally stiff-necked. And Israel's already demonstrated themselves to be obstinate. We saw them in the wilderness. God says, don't do this. They did it. God says, I'm going to test you with this. They fail the test. They keep on departing from Yahweh. Even though he's done all these wonderful things for them and continues to do so, they are an obstinate people, God says. And so notice his intention that he expressed in verse 10. He says, I'm just going to destroy them all. Let my anger burn. I'm going to restart with you, Moses. Notice, though, that phrase. He says, now then let me alone. Did God really want Moses to leave him alone? Because if so, why did God tell Moses what God is about to do? I mean, if God really just wanted to destroy them all, why not just do it? Telling Moses about it gives Moses a chance to speak to God and intervene. Nobody knows. That's exactly what Moses attempts to do. Verses 11 to 14, we see Moses asking God to change his mind, change his mind and spare Israel. By the way, where have we seen almost this same situation occur before? God says, I'm about to do something. I'm going to let you know about it. And then somebody said, wait, let me intercede. Isn't this what Abraham experienced with God right before Sodom was destroyed? God says, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Sodom's the wicked city. I'm going to go down and investigate. And if it's a, as bad as I hear it is, I'm going to judge it. And Abraham says, Lord, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? Please, for the sake of the righteous, will you spare it? And he has that, that conversation with God. Similar thing is happening here. God tells, what, God tells Moses what God's about to do. And Moses has a chance to intervene. And look what Moses asks God. He says, change your mind regarding this annihilation of Israel. Don't destroy them. And notice the reasons that Moses gives. Verse 11, he says, they are your people 
whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. So he takes the language that God used in verse 7 and, and reverses it. He says, they're your people, God. You chose them. You delivered them. And in verse 12, he says, the Egyptians, they'll malign your name if they discover you destroyed the people in the wilderness. You delivered them only to destroy them. And then verse 13, remember the promises you gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You said you'd multiply the people. You said you'd give them a land. God hears these reasons from Moses, and amazingly, God relents. Moses' intercession is successful. Verse 14 says God changed his mind. He changed his mind about the harm he intended to do to Israel. Let's ask some interpretation questions now. Why is God's announced intention to destroy Israel an appropriate reaction from God to their sin? You might think, whoa, whoa, this is a little bit of an overreaction, isn't it? Not at all. Why is this totally appropriate? Would God be justified in destroying Israel? He would. Why? Right. So, sorry, say it again. Right. 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 So, as the sovereign God, as the holy God, it is right for him to require exclusive worship. And again, that's evident even from the creation. And yet Israel hasn't even, has it even more explicitly declared to them. God said in Exodus 20, in the second commandment, verses four and five, specifically, if you make an idol and serve it, I will judge you. I'll repeat the verses for you. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an idol or in any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It is totally right. It is totally deserved for the righteous God to just destroy Israel here. They know what they're doing, in a sense. And for God to be faithful to himself, he would do that. You know, we often quote, and I've said this before, we often quote 2 Timothy 2.13 as a comfort to ourselves. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that is a comfort. But remember, it also means that God is faithful to judge. Because that's what the verse right before it in 2 Timothy 2 says. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And then if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God will be faithful to himself. He is a holy, a just, righteous God, full of indignation against sin. And so when we turn to that, persist in that, God will be faithful. He will judge. And he will chase him. Israel knows this. They've seen the terms of the covenant. They've affirmed that they will obey it. And they have not. They've broken the covenant and deserve to be judged. Why, though, does God grant Moses' request for mercy on Israel? 
Clearly, they deserve to be judged. Yeah, Joanne. Mm. Yeah, that's certainly part of it, right? He has promises to keep. God is also a faithful God, and he's, he's made certain promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God has determined, if I destroyed them all, and, and Moses brings this up, it's not consistent with the promises I've made in the past. And uh, we can even point specifically, God's made certain promises about a descendant of the tribe of Judah becoming king. And if all the descendants of the tribe of Judah are destroyed, that's not really going to happen. If you restart with Moses, you don't have Judah anymore. So there are some promises that God still has to keep. But why else? Why else does God show mercy? Yeah, Dwayne. Right. Right. So as you're saying, Dwayne, God's reputation is at stake. For his own sake and for his own name, he determines to show mercy. This is, again, as you said, Wayne, this is one of the reasons that Moses brings up. Think about your name, oh God. So ultimately, God does this for himself and for his own sake. And Steve, what were you going to say? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the other huge part of it. He is a God of wrath and justice, and yet he's also a God of mercy. No one can say, oh, because you're a God of mercy, show me mercy. I deserve it. I demand it. You can't. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And yet God sees fit so often to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. And he determines to do so here, partly also because he loves Moses. Moses is favored in God's sight. Moses has received mercy from God. And so when Moses makes this request, God says, for your sake, Moses, for my own sake, for the sake of the patriarchs, I will listen and I will relent. And he chooses not to judge Israel as Israel deserves. By the way, don't miss the insight here about even our own request to God. Moses frames these, his request and the reasons all in terms of, God, this is for your sake. And we ought, really ought to pray the same way. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we should try to manipulate God and be like, hey, you know, God, if you do this for me, you know, this is really going to work out for you and as a way to try and indulge our fleshly cravings. But really, if we're to be praying in the will of God and in the name of Jesus, we should be seeking the good of the Lord. I mean, anything that is good for God is the greatest good in the universe. It ultimately turns out to be for our good. So, when we look at a situation, we should be looking for, God, would this glorify you? Would this be pleasing to you? If so, because that's what you're committed to, that's what, that's what you deserve, and that's the greatest good for us all, then do that. How many times in the scriptures do we see people appealing to God in that way? God, remember your servant so that you can be glorified. God, deliver me from this trouble so that you can show yourself to be the Savior who you are. God, won't you save this person and, and, and display your mercy? Or God, won't you not allow this evil to go unpunished and display your holiness and justice? We ought to appeal to God on the basis of even his own glory. And actually, that works as a check for some of our prayers, because if we can't pray for something to result in God's glory, honestly, truly, well, maybe we need to change our request.
Now, here's another thought. This text is explicit in saying and showing that God changed his mind regarding Israel. But wait a second. How can God change his mind when we've already seen he's immutable? He's a God who does not change. And 1 Samuel 15, 29 says explicitly, this is God speaking, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Wait a second. He changed his mind here. How can that be? How can God say, I don't change my mind, and yet right here, clearly, he's changed his mind? This is a question we've seen before. What's the answer? Go ahead, Danny. Right. Okay. So that's one way to, to frame it, to describe it, that we're looking at the apparent complexity of God's will, where he can will or desire something which does not end up ultimately being fulfilled because it is not part of his eternal decree. Uh, I think, Roy, I saw your hand as well. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, so that's part of it too. God doesn't change his standard and his character doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. I mean, that's what many of those other passages are emphasizing when God says, I don't change. But to bring in what Danny was saying before, and I'll also repeat that comment you said that this is a teaching time for Moses. I think, yes, this is this is also being used in a very instructive way. I think the basic way to answer this question of how can it be that God says, I don't change my mind and, and I do change my mind, is that there are two senses of God changing his mind. And in one sense, God does change his mind. He was genuinely intent upon a course of action and then embarks upon a different course of action. And that's based off of Moses's intercession. If Moses hadn't made the request that Moses did, then God would have destroyed all Israel for their idolatry. This was not a joke. This was not pretend from God. Yet in another sense, God never changed his mind because he had always sovereignly determined that Moses would do just that. Since eternity, God had ordained all events, including Israel's flagrant rebellion with the golden calf. God ordained that, God ordained Moses' intercession, and God ordained his own changing of his plan to destroy them in anger. Now, again, God was not acting or pretending, yet God always knew that the outcome would be mercy and not annihilation. Now, this may be difficult for us to understand fully, but we're dealing with the sovereign and infinite God. He can have a will that works like this. He's both inside time and outside of time. He has a 
uh, a dynamic relationship with his people where he's he can proclaim one thing and then when they change he acts in a different way and yet everything that happens has always been sovereignly decreed so in one sense god changes his mind in another sense he doesn't change his mind now consider the implication of this for your own prayers because what do we often say to ourselves, especially when we become more acquainted with what the Bible says and what is called Reformed theology? We say, oh, God is sovereign. Why pray? Well, yes, God is sovereign and everything is eternally decreed. Yet, if you don't pray, certain things won't happen <laughs> because God determined that the means of things happening will be your prayers. Even momentous events, momentous changes in the world, they depend on your prayers. You say, I thought they depend on God's sovereign will. Yes, but God is using your prayers. Consider a whole people was spared from annihilation because one person prayed to God. You say, well, he was a special person. Well, he's a man just like us. Isn't that James' point at the end of his book? He says the righteous prayer or the prayer of a righteous man affects much. He's just a man like us. And you consider the effect of his prayers. Consider the effect of your prayers, the potential effect. Because God says, I will respond to the prayers of those whom I have set my love upon. Yes, even you and even me. Our prayers matter because, in a sense, they change the mind of God. Or rather, they fulfill what God has always decreed. So both are true. Now, Israel's been spared from instant annihilation, but their revelry is continuing. Something needs to be done. So let's see what happens next, what Moses does in the last section we're going to look at, Exodus 32, verses 15 to 35. Exodus 32, starting in verse 15, going to the end of the chapter. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, and scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever is any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man, his neighbor and every man, his friend and every man or every man, his brother, every man, his friend and every man, his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed 
and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to Yahweh, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Yahweh said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then Yahweh smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Let's observe this last section. Notice in verse 16 that Moses goes down with the two tablets of the testimony, which have God's writing on both sides. Moses meets up again with Joshua, and he reports what sounds like war in the camp. Now, think about what ancient warfare sounds like. How would you describe it? Yeah, lots of screaming, yelling. It's chaos. It's loud. You've got the banging of sword against shield, people charging, agonized cries. All this mixed together in this, this cacophony. And Joshua says, that's what it sounds like in Israel right now. Mixed in with singing and music. In verse 19, when Moses sees the golden calf, notice he throws down his tablets in anger and they're shattered against the ground. But what to do now, Moses? Priority one, get rid of that calf. Notice in verse 20, Moses, he does so in a pretty poignant way. He burns it, grinds it to powder, mixes it with water and makes the people drink it. Priority two, confront Aaron. Look at verses 21 to 24. How does Aaron explain his behavior with this golden calf? That's right. Who, who or what does he blame? There's the people. Yeah, you know, it's the people, man. You know, they're so prone to evil. They, they basically made me do it. What else does he blame? The fire. I feel like it's one of the most comic parts of the scriptures. He says, I just threw it in the fire and this calf came out. I'm not sure if he thought that was really something Moses would believe, but Moses or Aaron is not taking responsibility. Again, he's demonstrating some pretty weak leadership. But got rid of the calf, confronted Aaron. What's next? Restore order among the people. Look at verse 25. Notice it says that Aaron had let the people get out of control. And so they're engaging in this continued unrestrained behavior, probably including drunkenness, probably including immorality. People are just letting their passions run wild. And verse 25 also says, it's kind of a little parenthetical, Israel had become, through this, a derision among their enemies. People will mock Israel and mock Israel's God based on how Israel is acting right now. So notice what Moses does in verse 26. He stands in the gate at one end of the camp, and he calls for anyone in Israel ready to act on behalf of God. 
and turns out the tribe of Levi rallies to Moses. In verse 27, God, or Moses calls on the Levites to go from end to end in the camp and kill their brothers, friends, and neighbors. They do so. According to verse 28, it says 3,000 in Israel were killed. Now, this is the first time we've seen people in Israel dying as a result of, of sin. This is significant. And 3,000. And then in verse 29, Moses tells the people, in light of what happened, they need to dedicate themselves to Yahweh, and maybe they can obtain a blessing from Yahweh. And with this, with the order restored, Moses shifts to his last priority, which is intercede for the people. Verse 30, notice Moses tells the people they've committed a great sin. Perhaps Moses will make atonement, be able to make atonement for them. Moses then goes up again to God. And notice what Moses prays to God in verses 31 to 32. He confesses the people's sin, verse 31. He asks for God's forgiveness, verse 32. And then this interesting statement, in verse 32, he says, If not, if, you're, if you won't grant them forgiveness, or if you can't grant them forgiveness, blot me out from your book, which you have written. You might be asking, hey, wait, what book? Now, this is an idiomatic expression referring to the book of the living. Don't connect it to the book of life necessarily in Revelation. That may be using the, the term in a different way. That's the book of eternal life. This is more uh, local to Israelite context, the book of the living, those who are alive. If you're blotted out from the book, you die. So Moses is saying, if you won't forgive them, then put me to death. And you say, well, what exactly is Moses suggesting? Now yeah, we'll come back to that. We get a clue, though, in what God says in response in verses 33 and 34. Verse 33, God says, I will blot out, that is, I will put to death people for their own sin. That's what I'm going to do, Moses. Verse 34, as for you, Moses, lead the people on as my angel goes before you. And now notice verse 35. It says, then Yahweh smote the people because of what they did with the calf. Now, this is a really interesting statement. The word smote here is the Hebrew word for striking, smiting, striking. It can refer to just physically being hit, but often used metaphorically in the scriptures, especially for describing God sending a plague. Say God smote them with a plague or struck them with a plague. And this is actually why if you have the ESV, the NIV, or even the King James translation of this passage, verse 35, they all use wording that indicates God sent a plague among the people. However, the word smote or smite, it can refer to setbacks besides plagues, even in a metaphorical way. If one suffers death or suffers defeat or suffers illness, for instance, those can all be referred to as being smote by God. So is verse 35 describing a new punishment from God? People died earlier, but now here's a plague from God? Well, there's also a grammatical wrinkle here. To not get too technical, the verb form in verse 35 in Hebrew is one often used to indicate sequence. This happened, and then this happened. This is why the New American Standard translates the beginning of verse 35 as, then the Lord smote. The word then there indicating that sequence. Sequence would mean that this is a new act from God. However, it is possible that the verb form, instead of indicating sequence, could indicate result result of what's already happened. So that is to say, the people suffered loss earlier in the passage, 3,000 died. 
Thus, Israel, as a result, can consider themselves smote by God, struck by God. Actually, in his commentary on this, John Calvin takes this view, that this is not a new event. This is just summarizing or giving the consequence of what has already taken place. So how should we understand verse 35? Well, we'll come back to that. That's an interpretation question. And let's move to interpretation now. But we need to look at some other questions before we consider how to understand verse 35. Here's my first question here. Why does Moses throw down the tablets? He just upset and said, you know what? <clears throat> now, what's really going on there? Yeah, Joanne. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. I mean, if we say that Moses was just upset and he, he, he having a little temper tantrum, I mean, that's that's God's covenant. That's recorded by the finger of God. That's pretty that's pretty bad. No, I think this is rather he's come to the camp. He sees what they've done and he says, you know what? This is exactly what they've done. They've broken the covenant. So I'm literally going to break it in front of them. I think that's the best way to understand it. Why, though? Another question. Why does Moses do what he does with the calf? He burns it, grinds it down, mixes it with water, and has the people drink it. It's pretty intense. Just for the sake of time, I'll, I'll maybe fill in some thoughts on this question. I think multiple things are being stated, shown through those actions. First of all, he's saying, you people are responsible. You made this calf. Yeah, Aaron made it, but you're the one who, who caused him to make it. Now you drink the calf. This was your act. Second, it shows them that their idolatry is heinous. It doesn't say, you know what, you did wrong, but let's take this gold, melt it down, and we'll make some more earrings. And he says, you know what, this is trash now because of what you've done. This does not deserve to be repurposed. This, just means, this should be obliterated because idolatry is an offense to God. But I also think you can see some contempt for idolatry here. This is a supposedly a god that they worshipped, but he destroys it, pulverizes it, and then has them drink it. This, this great being that you are worshiping, this God, so to speak, now it's just dust. It's just something that's going to become waste as it goes through your digestive system. This was the God that you were worshiping. So you can see some contempt for idolatry in Moses' action. And this is, this is still true. All these things are true of idols even today. Now, another important clarification, what exactly is Moses calling the Levites to do? Because we might think, okay, is he just saying go and go, go kill your family and closest friends? Or find some random Israelites and kill them? I don't think so. The text says the people were out of control. So likely the Levites, they were going through the camp to reestablish order and control. They were to cause the people to stop their idolatrous revelry, and for those who wouldn't, to put them to death. We do see a similar situation in Numbers 25, where people at that time, they join with some idolatrous inhabitants of the land in an immoral feast. And they again go out of control. And God says, you need to put to death the people who are perpetrating this and continuing in this. And that's exactly what Israel does. We have a apparently similar situation here. God is, through Moses, calling on the people of Israel put to death those who are persisting in this idolatry, who will not come back under control. 
And that's what they do. And 3,000 3, in Israel are killed. By the way, this was not some unjustified vigilante justice. God actually rewards the Levites later for their demonstrated zeal here. This is why they become the tribe chosen to service the tabernacle. God says, you did a right thing by responding to Moses' call. And they destroyed those who were persisting in idolatry. Another question, why did Israel need intercession again in verse 30? Didn't Yahweh already relent from judgment? Well, God had relented from instant annihilation, but not necessarily all judgment. It may have been that God's mercy was temporary. Israel would certainly need a more comprehensive forgiveness and covering once all the dust had settled. Of course, that's going to play into the tabernacle system that will be inaugurated. Now, how should we understand Moses' plea about being blotted out in verse 32? What do you think? One way we could understand it is Moses being like, if you're not going to forgive them, then just kill me because life stinks. I don't think that's the way to understand it. What instead is Moses suggesting? Yeah, Steve. Okay, uh, very interesting comment, but just let me tease out something a little bit more. So what is Moses offering God? That's right. I think that's the way to understand it. He's saying, if you won't forgive them, then kill me instead. If you say that, I know it, someone has to die, then kill me instead of Israel. And I think there certainly is a parallel with Christ in some, some measure. This is the same kind of mediation that we see with Christ or the, the desire expressed by Moses is certainly consistent with what Christ will do in the future. And it's actually very similar to what even Paul expresses in the New Testament. You remember in Romans 9, Paul says, I could wish myself accursed, separate from Christ, for the sake of my brethren. I, would, I could wish to be destroyed and damned forever if it means that the people of Israel might be saved. And I think the reason why we see this parallel between Paul and Moses and Christ in terms of this kind of intercession, is that this is the heart of God. This is what righteousness and love does. It seeks to save and intercede for the sake of others. Moses is seeking to do that for his people. And this is quite amazing. What does this show us about Moses' attitude towards the people of Israel? That's right. Moses loves his people. They've complained against him. They've shown themselves to be stubborn and sinful, but he loves them. 
They are his brethren, and he wants to see them saved. And this is just like Paul. And of course, this is just like Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ in an even greater way. But God does not accept Moses' offer. Though he does accept Christ's offer, in a sense, if we think about it in terms of an offer. So why? Why the difference? Why does he accept Christ as a substitute, but not Moses or even Paul? Certainly, it's because there are different calibers of substitutes, aren't they? Moses and Paul, they can't do what Christ did. Even though that's a, a righteous desire, they are sinners. They are mere men. They cannot become a perfect sacrifice to save someone from the wrath of God. But Christ can. And Christ did because he's the son of God who lived a perfectly righteous life and then died the death that could absorb entirely the wrath of God for sin in his people. So Moses couldn't do what Christ would do. Nevertheless, that mark of intercessory love, that should be consistent in all of God's people, even us today. Moses is demonstrating that. Now, verse 35, come back to this question. Is it describing a separate plague? Was there another judgment or was this just a summary statement? I think this is a pretty tough question to answer. And there are certainly good interpreters who go both ways. I lean on the side that this is a summary statement and not another plague. And the reason is a plague of sorts has already taken place in this passage. The Levites have killed 3,000 men. Usually God only sends one judgment per sinful episode. So I think that this is just a summary statement. Also, this report comes at the end of this section of narrative, which makes sense for a summary statement and less sense for another significant act, another major development, like God sending a plague. But I admit, that is a difficult question to answer. Running short on time, but let me go through a few other questions. Why did Israel ask for an idol? I mean, they had God. Why do they want an idol? Was it fear? Uncertainty? They hadn't seen Moses for a while, been 40 days. Where's God? Where's Moses? There's an impatience. Hey, man, we want to get to that promised land. Let's get a God. Let's get a leader going. Maybe those played a role, but ultimately, I think this is just evil cravings of the heart. Why do they end up in unrestrained behavior? Because they are craving it. Their flesh is craving sinful indulgence. And so they're, they're looking for a God that will justify that. And I believe this is why Paul brings up this episode in 1 Corinthians 10. You may remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching there at Calvary, I mentioned that passage. The context is people eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, look, that is your Christian liberty. But if you're going to exercise that liberty as a way to just indulge your flesh and not care about your brethren, you know what? You're acting just like the people of Israel. They were just looking to indulge their flesh. And that's why God kept judging them. That's why they got involved in complaining and idolatry and immorality, because they loved sin and they loved fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And that's I, that comment from the New Testament, I think, helps to inform, helps to help us to see what's really motivating Israel in seeking this golden calf. You can't just say, oh, we were afraid. No, it was the lust of their heart. Now, of course, this event, it's recorded in the scripture. The fact that it happened and the record of it, it's given to show us who God is. And what does God display about himself in this passage? Fundamentally, God is a jealous God. God is a holy God who will not allow devotion 
that rightly belongs to him be given to some false god or idol. Even if it bears the same name as God, if it's not God, he hates it. He is enraged over it. He is jealous, and rightly, because he deserves all worship and honor. We see God does not accept false or syncretistic worship. God is wrathful against idolatry. God is faithful, but God is also merciful. God accepts intercession, even the requests of those he loves. We also see that people, even we ourselves, we need forgiveness and atonement to protect us from God's wrath against idolatry. Because let's face it, have all of us been idolaters? Before Christ and even after Christ, have we not fallen into idolatry? We need an intercessor and one better than Moses. And of course, God has provided such in Christ. So we're now already thinking, and throughout the lesson, I've been pointing you to certain applications. So I hope that you'll take time today and this week to think more through those applications. Let me just summarize three realms of application I think that you should continue to think about. How should this passage transform you, transform us? Number one, beware the jealousy of God. God said in Exodus 20, when he gave the Ten Commandments, that he is jealous and he meant it. And we see it here. So if we're being nonchalant about idols in our lives, we need to pay attention to this passage. God was willing to destroy even the people who called upon him, who said they were worshiping him, but in fact were using the gifts of God to serve idols. Will we dare to do the same? Will we continue to do the same in light of God declaring this passage to us? Beware the jealousy of God. Number two, recognize your need for a mediator. Already broached this topic, but you've been an idolater, and so have I. And that's why we need someone to mediate for us like Moses did, but better than Moses did. And of course, that only happens through Jesus Christ. Only he can cover the sin of your idolatry and clothe you with his righteousness. So are you covered? Do you have him as a mediator? And think about how lovely his mediation is as your great high priest, not only to secure you, save you from God's wrath by that once-for-all sacrifice, but to continue to intercede for you. I don't know if you think about this, but he is your high priest continually before the Father praying for you. Hebrews talks about how he is sympathetic, and when you are tempted, he intercedes for you in such a way that you will have exactly what you need to overcome that temptation. What love from our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love the Lord because of his mediation for you? And then number three, intercede for those around you. We see the righteousness of Moses in seeking to intercede for his brethren. What about us? Do we look to intercede for sinners that we know? Do we pray for them to God? And do we speak to them on God's behalf? They need intercession. And you know what? So do the people at Calvary. Your brothers and sisters need intercession. They need you to pray for them. They need you to talk to them. This is what God's people do. This is reflecting the righteous heart of God. Christ, the Son of God, is a mediator, an intercessor. His people are going to reflect that. So do you intercede for sinners? And do you intercede for your brethren? That should be a mark of God's people. All right. Went a couple of minutes over. I apologize about that. That's it for this week. Next week, we go back a little bit 
and look at God's instructions for the tabernacle. A crisis has been averted. God will continue in fellowship with his people. But how's that going to work? How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Well, the sacrificial tabernacle system is going to go a long way to explaining how that's going to work. So look forward to talking to you about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, this word deserves more time of meditation, so I pray that you would grant that to your people. Lord, we need to recognize and live in such a way that, that it shows that you are a jealous God and that we, we will not serve another idol along with you or in place of you. God, forgive us for where we have done that. God, cause us to follow after you, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the only one who could save us from the wrath that our idolatry has deserved. But Lord, lead us after you to worship only you. In Jesus' name, amen. I right, thank you all. See you again soon.